You're listening to The World in My Eyes. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio. Hello, Renegade Nation Atlanta, and welcome to another episode of The World in My Eyes, where I get the opportunity of sharing all those crazy-ass voices in my head and what they say on a regular basis. And we have spent such a great deal of time getting so very intimate with each other, but in case you're new, I am the naughty mistress with the mostest, the melodic goddess, and the deviant diva, naughty Nicole Delacroix. Now, before I jump into today's topic, I do want to remind all you naughty little listeners out there that the Renegade Talk Radio Network has been growing like a weed lately. Where the hell have you been? And we've got a brand new awesome website, so make sure that you've got it bookmarked. And make sure that you're checking back all the time so you can hear all the fascinating and provocative shows on our website. Don't forget, we've got much more great talk radio on its way to you, so make sure you're checking with us every single day. Because I promise you this, you don't want to miss what's coming up next. And hey, are you a budding podcaster yourself? Do you think you've got the cojones to join the Renegade Talk Radio Network? Well, then guess what? Head on over to the website and sign up so that you can show Richie what you got. No dick pics, please. Richie will show you how to do things right. And guess what? If you do have the right stuff, he's going to put you on Renegade. And you know what? If you're in the mood for some hot-ass tunes, we got that for you, too. Don't forget Sky Pilot Radio playing the best damn music of all time. All right, enough of the bullshit, my friends. Let's jump into today's topic, my little heathens. And on today's episode of The World in My Eyes, yes, my poor little heathens, I'm so very sorry. I have been MIA. From illness to work to illness again and work again, I have been unable to do a show for such a long time, but I have finally been released by the doctor. Don't tell anybody I have escaped the rubber room, and I'm going to do my very best to do more episodes for you, I promise. And in a feeble attempt to make things up to you, my lovelies, I'm going to start with one of my favorite type of episodes to do, a holiday episode. That's right. It's that time of the year when, well, we're all Irish no matter where the hell you're from. But do you really know what St. Patrick's Day is all about? I am betting not. But that's okay. Don't panic, my heathens. Naughty Nicole is here to help you out with this one. So what began as a religious feast day in the 17th century has evolved into a variety of festivals across the globe celebrating Irish culture with parades, special foods, music, dancing, and a whole hell of a lot of green. St. Patrick's Day is celebrated annually on March 17th to commemorate the anniversary of St. Patrick's death in the 5th century. The Irish, well, they've been observing this day as a religious holiday for over a thousand years. I know, what happened with the rest of us? We're just like jumping on the Johnny bandwagon here. On St. Patrick's Day, which falls during the Christian season of Lent, Irish families would traditionally attend church in the morning and celebrate in the afternoon. Lenten prohibitions against the consumption of meat were waived, and people would dance, drink, and feast on the traditional meal of Irish bacon and cabbage. I'm going to just say it, we all love bacon. 
you know, I'm just going to say, I'm going to throw a joke in here for you. Why do pigs have a 30 minute orgasm? Because even God loves bacon. That's right, people. St. Patrick. He's the patron saint of Ireland, and he is one of Christianity's most widely known figures. But for all of his prevalence in culture, namely the holiday held in the day, on the day of his death that, well, bears his name, his life, well, it remains a big old mystery for us. Many of the stories traditionally associated with St. Patrick, including the famous account of his banishing of all the snakes in Ireland, dude, he's totally a man after my, after my heart, well, guess what? They're false, and they're products of hundreds of years of exaggerated story storytelling. So, what do we know? Well, not much. But it is known that St. Patrick was born in Britain to wealthy parents near the end of the 4th century. He is believed to have died on March the 17th, somewhere around 460 A.D., Although his father was a Christian deacon, it has actually been suggested that he probably only took on the role because of tax incentives, because there's no real evidence that Patrick came from a particularly religious family. <laughs> Go fig, right? At the age of 16, Patrick was taken prisoner by a group of Irish raiders, those bandy r Irish raiders. I love them. They are so good. I wonder, did they wear kilts too? No, that's just the Scots. Who cares? And these raiders were attacking Patrick's family's estate. They transported Patrick to Ireland, where he spent six years in captivity. Now, there is a little bit of a dispute over where this alleged captivity took place, although many believe he was taken to live in Mount Slimish in County Antrim. It is more likely that he was held in County Mayo near Killala. During this time, he worked as a shepherd, outdoors and away from most people. Lonely and afraid, he turned to his religion for solace, becoming a devout Christian. I'm just going to say it. Why is it always sheep? I don't know. It's also believed that Patrick first began to dream of converting the Irish people to Christianity during his captivity. He writes that his faith grew in captivity and that he prayed daily. After more than six years as a prisoner, Patrick finally escaped. According to his writing, a voice, which he believed to be God's, spoke to him in a dream, telling him that it was time for him to leave Ireland. To do so, Patrick walked nearly 200 miles from County Mayo, and am I the only one that's singing that stupid Proclaimer song, I would walk okay, never mind, where it's believed he was held to the Irish coast. After escaping to Britain, Patrick reported that he experienced a second revelation. An angel in a dream tells him to return to Ireland as a missionary. Soon after, Patrick began religious training, a course of study that lasted more than 15 years. After his ordination as a priest, he was sent to Ireland with a dual mission. One, to minister to Christians already living in Ireland, and two, to begin to convert the heathens, the Irish. Interestingly, this mission contradicts the widely held notion that Patrick introduced Christianity to Ireland. Nope, they were already living there. Sorry, guys. So, familiar with the Irish language and their culture, Patrick chose to incorporate traditional ritual into his lessons of Christianity, instead of attempting to eradicate native Irish beliefs. Smart move, smart dude. For instance, he used bonfires to help celebrate Easter since the Irish were used to honoring their gods with fire. 
He also superimposed a sun, a very powerful Irish symbol, onto the Christian cross to create what is now called a Celtic cross, so that veneration of the symbol would seem more natural for the Irish. Although there were a small number of Christians on the island when Patrick arrived, most Irish practiced a nature-based pagan religion. The Irish culture centered around a rich tradition of oral legend and myth. When this is considered, it's no surprise that the story of Patrick's life became exaggerated over the centuries. Because guess what? Spinning exciting tales to remember history has always been a way of life for the Irish. And the, mister, the mythology surrounding St. Patrick's life became ever more ingrained in the Irish culture. Perhaps the, the most well-known legend is that he explained the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, using the three leaves of a native Irish clover, the shamrock. But since around the 9th or 10th century, people in Ireland, well, they've been observing the Roman Catholic feast day of St. Patrick on March the 17th. Interestingly, the first parade held to honor St. Patrick's Day never even took place in Ireland. Nope, it happened in the U.S. On March 17, 1762, Irish soldiers serving in the English military marched through New York City. Along with their music, the parade helped the soldiers reconnect with their Irish roots, as well as with fellow Irishmen serving in the English army. And over the next 35 years, Irish patriotism among American immigrants flourished, prompting the rise of the so-called Irish Aid Societies like the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick and the Hibernian Society. Each group would hold annual parades featuring bagpipes, which actually first became popular in Scottish and British armies, and the drums. In 1848, several New York Irish Aid Societies decided to unite their parades to form one official New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade. Today, that parade is the world's oldest civilian parade and the largest in the United States, with over 150,000 participants. Each year, nearly 3 million people lined the 1.5-mile parade route to watch the procession, which actually takes more than five hours. Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Savannah, Georgia also celebrate St. Patrick's Day with parades involving roughly 10 to 20,000 participants each. So, as you can see, St. Patrick's Day was a pretty tame holiday in the beginning. In fact, it was a pretty minor religious holiday in Ireland until the 1970s. Pubs were even closed on March 17th in Ireland every year until the 1970s. That's when we can trace some of the modern revelry associated with the day to the fact that prohibitions on eating meat, drinking, and dancing during Lent were lifted for the day. But America, that's right, we own it, is responsible for turning St. Patrick's Day into the big-ass party we know and love today, which really isn't very surprising. There's some debate over when the first St. Patrick's Day parade took place, but early celebrations happened in Boston in 1737 and New York in 1762. St. Patrick's celebration. St. Patrick's Day celebrations continued to grow as more and more Irish immigrants came to the U.S., especially after the, the infamous Irish potato famine that hit in 1845. Today, there are celebrations in many small towns, big cities, and bars across the country. New York's 
St. Patrick's Day Parade is still the world's oldest, but Chicago, they own it. They're famous for dyeing the Chicago River green every year for its St. Patrick's Day celebration. And up until the mid-19th century, most Irish immigrants in America were members of the Protestant middle class. When that great potato famine hit Ireland in 1845, close to one million poor and uneducated Irish Catholics began pouring into America's shores to escape starvation. Despised for their alien religious beliefs and unfamiliar accents by the American Protestant majority, the immigrants had trouble finding even menial jobs. So, when Irish Americans in the country's cities took to the streets on St. Paddy's Day to celebrate their heritage, newspapers portrayed them in cartoons as drunk and violent monkeys. Ah, they portray me as a violent monkey and I don't care. The American Irish soon began to realize, however, that their large and growing numbers endowed them with a political power that had yet to be exploited. Huh, somebody hear the Kennedys coming around? They started to organize, and their voting bloc, known as the Green Machine, became an important swing vote for political hopefuls. Suddenly, annual St. Paddy Day parades became a show of strength for Irish Americans, as well as a must-attend event for a slew of political candidates. And in 1948, President Harry S. Truman attended New York City's St. Patrick's Day Parade, a proud moment for many of Irish Americans whose ancestors had to fight stereotypes and racial prejudice to find acceptance in the New World. And, of course, as the immigrants spread out all over the, U- the U.S., other cities developed their own traditions. Of course, we got Chicago with their Green River, which started back in 1962 when city pollution control workers used dyes to trace illegal sewage discharge and realized that the green dye might provide a unique way to celebrate the holiday. That year, they released over 100 pounds of green vegetable dye into the river, enough to keep it green for a full week. Today, in order to minimize environmental damage, only 40 pounds of dye is used and the river turned greens for only a few hours. Although Chicago historians claim their city's idea for a river green was original, some natives of Savannah, Georgia, that's right, us Georgia people are coming at you, whose St. Patrick's Day Parade is the oldest in the nation, and it dates back to 1813, believe that the idea really originated in their town. They point out that in 1961, a hotel restaurant manager named Tom Woolley convinced city officials to, d- to dye the Savannah River green. The experiment, well, it didn't exactly work as planned, and the water only took on a slight greenish hue. Savannah never attempted to dye its river again, but Woolley maintains, and we have some people who refute the claim, that he personally suggested the idea to Chicago's Mayor Richard J. Daly. I'm just going to say that, you know what, if you've ever been to Savannah, you know the river's pretty green anyways. Sorry about that, guys. I love you, Savannah. Today, people of all backgrounds celebrate St. Patrick's Day, especially throughout the United States, Canada, and Australia. Although North America is home to the largest productions, St. Patrick's Day is celebrated in many other locations far from Ireland, including Japan, Singapore, and Russia. In modern-day Ireland, St. Patrick's Day was traditionally been a religious occasion. In fact, up until the 1970s, Irish law mandated that pubs be closed on March the 17th. But, beginning in 1995, the Irish government began a national campaign to use interest in St. Patrick's Day to drive tourism and showcase Ireland and Irish culture to the rest of the world. Thank you for that. 
Today, approximately one million people annually take part in Ireland's St. Patrick Festival in Dublin, a multi-day celebration featuring parades, concerts, outdoor theater productions, and fireworks shows. So, when did the first St. Patrick's Day parade take place? And just how much corned beef and cabbage is consumed in the U.S. each year? Find out how many Americans trace their lineage to Ireland and more fun facts about St. Patrick's Day food and traditions after we take a quick trip to visit with our sponsors and maybe check out a little Irish music for you. I'll be dancing a jig. You're listening to The World in My Eyes. I am Naughty Nicole, and this is Renegade Talk Radio Atlanta. So, my Renegade Nation, meet me here after the break. Welcome back, Renegade Nation. If you're just tuning in, well, you're listening to The World in My Eyes. I am still Naughty Nicole, your hostess with the mostess, and we're back with all things Irish. So let's jump right back into all the fun. So, St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Corned beef and cabbage is the traditional St. Patrick's Day dish. And in 2009, roughly 26.1 billion pounds of beef and 2.3 billion pounds of cabbage were produced in the United States. And I'm guessing there was roughly about 15.8 billion farts handled on that day. Anyways... Irish soda bread gets its name and distinctive character from the use of baking soda rather than yeast as a leavening agent. And lime green chrysanthemums, say that ten times fast, right, are often requested for St. Patrick's Day parades and celebrations. Duh. The first St. Patrick's Day parade took place in the U.S. on March 17, 1762, when our Irish soldiers serving in the English military marched through New York City. More than 100 St. Patrick's Day parades are held across the U.S. New York City and Boston are home to some of the largest, although Savannah's still the best, because I love you guys. At the annual New York City St. Patrick's Day parade, participants march up 5th Avenue from 44th Street to 86th Street. Each year, between 150 and 250,000 marchers take part in the parade, which does not allow automobiles or floats. That's right, no floats. And hey, how about some places to spend St. Patrick's Day? There are seven places in the U.S. that are named after the shamrock, the floral emblem of Ireland, including Mount Gay Shamrock, West Virginia, Shamrock, Texas, Shamrock Lakes, Indiana, and Shamrock, Oklahoma. There are 16 U.S. places that share the name of Ireland's capital, Dublin. With 44,541 residents, Dublin, California is the largest of the the group, followed by Dublin, Ohio with 39,310. Other towns with the luck of the Irish include Emerald Isle, North Carolina, and Irish Town, Illinois. So let's talk about our Irish Americans. There are 34.7 million U.S. residents with Irish ancestry. Look that up on Ancestry.com, guys. This number is more than seven times the population of Ireland itself. Oh, the Emerald Isle. Irish is the nation's second most frequently reported ancestry, ranking right behind German. Big surprise, drinking and food, two of the biggest ones, right? I know, I'm German. (laughs) Okay. Across the country, 11% of residents lay claim to 
Irish ancestry, that number more than doubles to 23% in the state of Massachusetts. Big surprise where the Kennedys are from, huh? Irish is the most common ancestry in 54 U.S. counties, of which 44 are in the Northeast. Middlesex County in Massachusetts tops the list with 348,978 Irish Americans, followed by Norfolk County, Mass., which is 203,285. Irish ranks among the top five ancestries in every state except for, you guessed it, Hawaii and New Mexico. It is the leading ancestry group in Delaware, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. And there are approximately 144,588 current U.S. residents who were truly born in Ireland. Now that we got a few tidbits about that holiday, let's get some of the facts straight by exploring the truth behind some of the common misconceptions about St. Patty's Day. Myth number one, St. Patrick was Irish. Yeah, we already discovered that Though he's one of Ireland's patron saints, Patrick was born in what is now England, Scotland, and possibly Wales. We're not sure. The the interpretations just vary too much. And he was born to a Christian deacon and his wife, probably around the year 390. According to the traditional narrative, at 16 he was enslaved by Irish raiders who attacked his home. They transported him to Ireland, held him captive there for six years, where he later fled to England, where he received his religious instruction before returning to Ireland as a missionary. Myth number two. You knew it. St. Patrick was British. No, sorry. Just because his birthplace was in Britain doesn't mean that Patrick was a Brit. However, at least not really technically. During his lifetime, the British Isles were occupied by the Romans, a group that included Patrick's parents and thus the saint himself. And it's unknown whether his family, thought to have been part of the Roman aristocrats, was of indigenous Celtic descent or hailed from modern-day Italy. When When Patrick penned the two surviving documents attributed to him, he wrote in Latin and signed his name as Patricus. But according to some accounts, he was born in Mewan, Sukkot. Myth number three. St. Patrick brought Christianity to Ireland. Well, we already know that's not true. In 431, before Patrick began preaching in Ireland, Pope Celestine reportedly sent a bishop known as Pallidus to the Irish believing in Christ, an indication that some residents of the Emerald Isle had already converted by then. One theory holds that the St. Patrick of Lore is actually an amalgam of two men, Pallidus and the deacon's son who first visited Ireland as a slave. We'll never know. My personal favorite myth, St. Patrick banished snakes from the Emerald Isle. He's a man after my own heart. Get rid of the slitheries. It has long been recounted that during his mission in Ireland, St. Patrick once stood on a hilltop, which, by the way, is now called Krog Patrick, and with only a wooden staff by his side, delivered a sermon that drove the island's serpents into the sea. While it's true that the Emerald Isle is mercifully snake-free, Chances are that's been the case throughout human history. Water has surrounded Ireland since the end of the last glacial period, preventing snakes from slithering over. Before that, it was blanketed in ice and just, well, too chilly for those cold-blooded little motherfuckers. Scholars believe the snake story is just an allegory for St. Patrick's eradication of the pagan ideology. All right, myth number whatever we are on. I forgot. I've had way too much whiskey. Sorry. (laughs) Green has historically been associated with St. Patrick's Day. 
The Irish countryside may be many shades of green and beautiful. But knights in the Order of St. Patrick, well, they wore a color that's known as St. Patrick's Blue. Why did green become so emblematic of St. Patrick that people began drinking green beer, wearing green, and, of course, dyeing the Chicago River green to mark the holiday he inspired? I don't know, but I'm all about some green beer and some green whiskey, and I could care less about the Chicago River. Wearing green, not so much. I have green eyes, so I don't care, but I did paint my fingernails green, so whatever. But the association probably dates back to the 18th century, when supporters of Irish independence used the color to represent their cause. And it stuck. Popular St. Patrick's Day festivities have their roots in Ireland. Well, we already know that until the 1700s, St. Patrick's Day was a Roman Catholic feast that was only observed in Ireland and without the raucous reveille of today's celebrations. Instead, the faithful spent the relatively somber occasion in quiet prayer at church or at home. That started to change when Irish immigrants living in the U.S. began organizing parades and other events on March 17th as a show of pride. And thank God they did because they make some damn good whiskey. I'm just saying. But for many people around the world, St. Patrick's Day has evolved into a secular ode to Irish culture, or at least an oversimplified version of it, characterized by parties, music, and iconic food. And you know what? I love the Irish. They have my heart. I love ya. Corned beef is a classic St. Patrick's Day dish. Oh, 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 oh. On St. Patrick's Day, countless merrymakers in the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere savor copious plates of corned beef and cabbage. And, you know, spend the rest of the evening saying the dog did it, right? In Ireland, however, a type of bacon similar to ham is the customary protein on the holiday table. And in the late 19th century, Irish immigrants in New York's Lower East Side supposedly substituted corned beef, which they bought from their Jewish neighbors in order to save money. That's not to say salt-cured beef isn't a traditional Irish dish. Pork, however, has historically been more widely available on the Emerald Isle. I'm all about some bacon, people! Let's talk about the shamrock. We all know it. We all love it. The shamrock, which was also called the Simroy by the, by the Celts, was a sacred plant in ancient Ireland because it symbolized the rebirth of spring. By the 17th century, the shamrock had become a symbol of emerging Irish nationalism. As the English began to seize Irish land and make laws against the use of the Irish language and the practice of Catholicism, many Irish began to wear the shamrock as a symbol of their pride in their heritage and their displeasure with English rule. And, you know, when they throw beers and, you know, throw Guinness and all that good stuff. Anyways. Irish music. Oh, I love the Irish music. It's so beautiful. Music is most often associated with St. Patrick's Day and with Irish culture in general. From ancient days of the Celts, music has always been an important part of Irish life. The Celts had an oral culture, where religion, legend, and history were passed from one generation to the next by way of stories and songs. After being conquered by the English and forbidden to speak their own language, the Irish, like other oppressed peoples throughout history, turned to music to help them remember important events and hold on to their heritage and history. As it as it often stirred emotion and helped to galvanize people, music was outlawed by the English. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, yeah, I've had a lot of whiskey, so chill. Queen Elizabeth actually decreed that all artists and pipers were to be arrested and hanged on the spot. Seriously, dude, that's fucked up. I'm oh, sorry. 
Today, traditional Irish bands like the Chieftains, the Clancy Brothers, and Tommy Makem are gaining worldwide popularity, and they should. Their music is produced with instruments that have been used for centuries, including the fiddle, the Eulilian pipes, well, which is kind of like the bagpipes, the tin whistle, which is kind of like a flute that's actually made of nickel, silver, brass, or aluminum, and the bodron, an ancient type of frame drum that was traditionally used in warfare rather than music. And let's talk about that corned beef again, because seriously, I'm hungry. <laughs> Each year, thousands of Irish Americans gather with their loved ones on St. Patty's Day to share a traditional meal of corned beef and cabbage. Though cabbage has long been an Irish food, corned beef only began to be associated with St. Patty's Day at the turn of the century by our Irish immigrants living in New York's Lower East Side when they had to substitute it. We already learned that. And my favorite thing, and the one thing you can never forget when you talk about the the Irish, is the leprechauns. The original Irish name for the figures in folklore is actually Lobrechin, meaning small-bodied fellow. Belief in leprechauns probably stems from Celtic beliefs in fairies, tiny men and women who could use their magical powers to serve good or evil. Hmm, I'm a tiny woman. I could use my my powers for good or evil, and I don't use them for good. Hmm, maybe I'm a fairy. I don't know. In Celtic folktales, leprechauns were cranky souls responsible for mending the shoes of the other fairies. Wow, that sounds like Richie and Sammy both. Wow. <laughs> Though only minor figures in Celtic folklore, leprechauns were known for their trickery, which they often used to protect their much-fabled treasure. And by the way, if you're listening to this, there is a full-on marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel for the leprechaun movies, which are the worst freaking movies ever, but they're hilarious. Anyways, and... The St. Patrick's Day celebration would never be complete without us toasting the health and welfare of the people that we hold near and dear with a great big mug of green beer or green whiskey. So, I'm going to share some of the most popular and some of the few lesser known pub toasts to celebrate our special day. So, we're going to start with the funny ones, because, you know, humor and laughter are part of everyday life, both here and in Ireland. And it was forged long ago from having to endure the struggle and the the existence that, you know, they had to scrape out. And St. Patrick's Day is a time for looking forward to a brighter future and possibly one in which everyone is Irish. So let's celebrate a positive outlook on life with a few funny toasts. May you always have a clean shirt, a clear conscience, and enough coins in your pocket to buy a pint. And... If you're lucky enough to be Irish, well, then you're lucky enough. May you have the health of a salmon, a strong heart, and a wet mouth. I'm not even going to touch that one. <laughs> As you slide down the banister of life, may the splinters never point the wrong way. Now that one has to be my favorite. <laughs> and in addition to the funny toast, we also like to toast our friendships. Toasting friendships is old and new, and it is an important facet of St. Patrick's Day. So while many of our Irish toasts are notoriously long-winded and cover a broad range of topics, and might have drinking companions wishing this speaker would shut the fuck up and speed things along, we try to keep them short and sweet, and centered on your friends is a best bet. So may your home always be too small to hold all your friends. A toast to your coffin. 
May it be made of a hundred-year-old oak, and may we plant the tree together tomorrow. Good health, good life, good beer, and let's add good whiskey. May you live as long as you want, and never want as long as you live. And to warm woods, warm words on a cold day. And then you need to say officially, you're officially ready for St. Patrick's Day, and the traditional resounding Irish shout of glasses off the table often follows the toast. May these authentic Irish toasts bring you one step closer to the magic and warmth of the Emerald Isle. Now, if you're craving some traditional Irish fare, then fret no more, my loves. I've put together some recipes for Irish soda bread with raisins, Irish brown bread, corned beef and cabbage, champ, and beef and Guinness pie, which, by the way, I will be making beef and Guinness pie. Anybody in the Atlanta area, hit me up. Click the link in the episode description to get your copy so you can celebrate with us. And with that, we've come to the end of the episode, and I thank you for joining me today. I hope you do take some time to reach out to me because I would love to hear from you. You can find me at my website, www.nicole-delacroix.com, on Twitter at at Nicole Delacroix, or via email at naughtynicolerenegadetalk at gmail.com. And on that note, well, that's all the time we got for today, and I want to thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio Atlanta, and don't forget to tune in next time. And remember, as I lift my glass of Irish whiskey, may the Irish hills caress you, may her lakes and rivers bless you, may the luck of the Irish enfold you, may the blessings of St. Patrick behold you. Until then, well, we'll see you next time, my precious little heathens, and happy St. Patrick's Day. Yeah!